When it comes to what we eat, few topics get people as fired up as GMOs, genetically modified organisms. On one hand, many people actively avoid GMOs and oppose their use due to concerns about human health or other food system impacts. On the other hand, many others view GMO foods as safe and believe they offer huge wins for our food system. Today's conversation between Dr. Anastasia Bodnar, a plant geneticist, and myself, a human geneticist, gets into the details of genetic engineering. Our shared goal is to help non-scientists to understand what's in your food, why it's there, and what it means for your health. You'll learn about the three different types of GMO foods, where GMOs are found, how the safety of GMO foods is evaluated, and how they are regulated and labeled, including some of the nuances of the new bioengineered food label in the U.S. While our conversation focuses on human health, there is clearly much more to the GMO debate than human safety. We'll touch on this briefly, and Dr. Bodnar will provide additional resources for those looking to learn more. Dr. Anastasia Bodnar is co-founder of Science Moms and policy director of Biology Fortified, a nonprofit organization that fosters conversations about issues in food and agriculture. She has worked for the USDA in risk assessment and risk management, and for the U.S. Army in public health and environmental inspections. Dr. Bodnar holds a PhD in plant genetics with a minor in sustainable agriculture from Iowa State University. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Anastasia, thank you so much for taking the time to join me for a conversation about GMOs. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. So as a human geneticist, I, I understand the genetic engineering tools well. But what I'm super excited about today is that you bring a deep background in plant biology, plant genetics, um, as well as agriculture and the regulatory side of things. So um, anyways, let's let's dig into as much as we can cover. Great, let's go. I think a great place to start is just a little bit about personally why this is a field that you've spent a lot of time in. So you've written about GMOs, you've worked in um, food safety assessment, um, you've volunteered uh, a lot of time in this capacity. So why is it you're so passionate about this topic? Well, I think that biotechnology offers a lot of potential for agriculture and medicine and, and more. Um, even energy and, and, and other areas, but the science is, is, can be complicated. And so in order to achieve those advantages that the technology offers, we have to have better public understanding of what it is and how it works. So that's why I've dedicated a lot of time to talking about it and writing about it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So let's just dive in with the definitions. And I think I think it's important to discriminate between the different types of um, GMOs or different ways that genetic engineering is used. Right. So um, I think that that one one way that probably your viewers would want to categorize these are are what's what's in our food. Right. That's the question that people want to know uh, know the answer to. So um, when we're talking about biotech crops, you could have a whole food product, right? Like a, a whole, like an apple that's genetically engineered. Um, or you could have um, highly processed genetically engineered ingredients. Um, so for example, 
cornstarch that comes from corn. It might be a genetically engineered corn plant, but that cornstarch is so highly purified that it doesn't have any DNA or protein in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, we have ingredients that are produced by genetically engineered microorganisms, such as yeast or bacteria, um, where those organisms have been engineered to produce a certain substance. Um, one example is the, um, the heme that is in impossible meat. Um, it's a genetically engineered um, heme, but once it's purified out of the, um, the microorganism, then uh, the genetically engineered organism is no longer there. It's just a, an ingredient, just like any other ingredient. Mm -hmm. Since a lot of people are concerned about the possible human health effects of genetically modified foods, uh, it would be great if you could shed some light on how they are tested, as well as on what is the body of scientific literature tell us from, from the, you know, our, our past decades of use of GMOs. Sure. So, um, so first of all, we need to look at each trait individually, as well as the crop that the trait is put in. Um, so a common trait is herbicide resistance. Um, that trait would be studied in many different ways. Um, and when regulatory systems globally look at, look at a GM crop, they would look at um, each one individually. So if they look at herbicide resistance in corn, they'd look at herbicide resistance in cotton, even if it was the same genes. Um, and they're analyzing those um, using lots and lots of data, um, much of it provided by the companies, but also independently sourced as well. Um, and they're looking mostly at the health effects, um, what potential impacts a crop might have on humans that consume it. Um, also looking at animal feed uh, as well, and then environmental impacts. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit is the... Um, the fact that we don't have to just look at when one regulatory system says so wherever your viewers are around the world for whatever reason they may or may not have complete trust in the regulatory system in their country mm -hmm. but if we look globally regulatory systems generally make the same decisions on the science side often governments will make a political decision apart from science that's fairly common. But when you look at what the science agencies say, um, it's it's pretty much the same across the board. Right. So the scientists will make a recommendation and then the policymakers may or may not follow it. And, and so you're saying if you look at the actual scientific recommendations, they will be on the same page? Pretty much. Yeah, there might yeah. be minor differences, but for the most mm -hmm. part, um, uh, you know, any regulatory body uh, that is a science-based regulatory body, mm -hmm. um, you know, making their decisions based on, on the available data. Um, they have all come to the conclusion that crops produced with biotechnology are no more risky than their counterparts. Mm -hmm. That said, we do have to look at individual traits, of course. Yeah. So when people talk about concerns about health of GMOs, are, like when you try to get people to be more specific, what are some of the specific concerns people have? And do we have data that speaks to those concerns? And, you know, A, are there existing data? And yeah. B, are those specific concerns addressed by the tests and, and that are done? Yeah, generally they are. Um, so, so one really important point is that food is highly regulated in most uh, developed, you know, or, or uh, 
well-funded countries, mm-hmm. right? So um, in the U.S. and Canada um, and in countries like Mexico and, and like most um, most countries regulate food pretty intensely because there's a there could be major health problems if there's unsafe food, um, mm-hmm. as well as problems of trust in the food supply, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are lots of good reasons to regulate food. Well, genetically engineered crops go through all the same regulations and safety safety procedures that non-genetically engineered foods would go through. But then on top of that, they also get a safety evaluation to determine if the trait that they're genetically engineered with has substantially changed um, the the safety of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, are there specific examples where something was maybe thought to be safe or where things were sort of uh, again, the regulators didn't approve because, you know, A, it was potentially allergenic or whatever it was that they were trying to look for, and they actually did find it and not move things forward? Yeah, so I'm going to give you a genetically engineered example and a non-genetically engineered example. Um, so we know that nature is, you know, dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of natural compounds that are produced by plants that are risky, some of which we like, like nicotine and caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, that means that when we're doing either plant breeding or genetic engineering, there's always a potential to, um, increase production of some substance in the plant that isn't safe. Mm -hmm. So one example that's pretty well known is, um, celery breeders were looking to get celery that was more insect resistance. Mm -hmm. And, um, this isn't genetically engineered. It was just, just traditional breeding, but they accidentally increased the amount of um, a chemical called sorolin in the celery, which causes a um, like sort of a rash reaction uh, on your skin when you touch it. And so um, before that celery made it to market, that effect was identified and they pulled those lines. And now celery is regularly screened for like new lines of celery are screened for for sorolins and, and similar mm-hmm. compounds to make sure that those don't get into the food supply and potentially hurt farm workers who are harvesting them and things like that. Okay. Um, and so that's something that happens no matter how a crop is developed. Right. And then a genetically engineered example would be um, uh, researchers were looking at, at trying to make I think it was uh, soybeans that had higher levels of protein or maybe a, a more complete protein. Mm-hmm. And so they used a, um, a particular gene sequence from Brazil nut and um, used that. And, and unfortunately, it turned out that, that that protein that they took from Brazil nut was one of them that causes um, nut allergies, that, that causes a, a reaction in people who have a nut allergy. Okay. So there are lots and lots of ways that genetically engineered crops are screened for allergens. Uh, there's mm-hmm. uh, computer programs where they're basically comparing the structure of known allergens to the protein that they're using. Mm-hmm. And um, like that's sort of like the easiest first step all the way up until animal studies to test yeah. for um, allergenicity. And so um, that was caught early on and they decided, you know, obviously to pull that product and not never enter the food supply um, mm-hmm. because obviously it'd be a pretty big risk if, um, someone who was allergic to nuts thought they were eating something with soybeans yeah. and then actually had a, a nut allergen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, you're making me think about sort of the, the drug space, which is a space that I'm more familiar with having worked a little bit in drug development. And you do see drugs, you know, go on the market and then get taken off later because again, something that happens in one in a million, you can't always foresee that in the earlier stage of drug development. So has that um, happened in the, in the GMO food space? As, as far as I know, there are no proven examples of a um, health or safety problem that resulted from a genetically engineered plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but uh, that that possibility something. does exist. So mm-hmm. the um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has the authority, at least in the U.S., has the authority to do a food recall. Mm-hmm. And um, if it turned out that there was a health risk from a particular GM crop, then they could, you know, mandate that the company pull all of it and mm-hmm. and not allow it back into the food supply. So if it did happen, there are regulatory mechanisms that, um, you know, allow for recalls. Yeah. Now, I, I read um, in terms of in terms of rare events, of course, you need large populations to, to find them. I've actually heard that um, livestock probably offer the biggest data set of all because they get most of our GM um, products. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there's a, a really great study where um, uh, researchers compared animal health and welfare, you know, before GM crops were widely um, used in animal feed and after. And, you know, we're talking about millions and millions of animals, right? Uh, cows and chickens and pigs um, who have all been eating GM crops for generations now. And there's no evidence of any negative impacts. In fact, there have actually been improvements in animal health, although that's unlikely to be due to the, the mm-hmm. GM feed. It's just because, right. you know, there are advan- um, mm-hmm. uh, advances all the time in agriculture. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's, there's after, after looking at millions of animals that are the most studied, I mean, they're, you know, farmers, um, like, like we worry about our pets, right? Like we, mm-hmm. you know, if we notice our, our animals are feeling sick, you know, then of course we're going to help them. Well, to a farmer, their livestock is their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so if, if animals are sick, then they're not producing as well. And um, farmers will notice that there are problems is basically yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, in addition, this is something that I don't think I've seen a paper on, but it's a similar concept where um, laboratory animals Mm-hmm. Um, used to be fed non-GM feed, and now you know they're getting like rat chow that's mm-hmm. you know made with genetically engineered crops. Right. And again, you know, laboratory animals, as you know, in studies are you know so thoroughly watched that if there was any kind of problem, you know, like if you're a lab tech and your job is to take care of the the rodents for medical studies you would know if all of a sudden over time your animals were less healthy because of the food changed, right? Mm. That there's been no evidence that that happened either. Yeah. And those lab animals, unfortunately, are getting very frequent autopsies. So very frequent, right. very so, detailed so autopsies. It would be noticed. Yeah. Yeah. If something, if something changed, you know, over the past, you know, 10 years or something, then like there would have been 
somebody yeah. would have noticed it. <laughs> yeah. So there are, so I guess my takeaway from this is there's tons and tons of data on animal safety, generations of use, generations of intensive use. Um, but I still hear a lot of people say, we just don't know about the human side of things. You know, I mean, in many contexts, it's not fair to extrapolate from animals to humans. And so what, I mean, what response sure. do you give to those who say, well, you just, you still just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And, you know, in terms of human health. Yeah, I mean, so we talked a bit about like animal studies that are more um, like observational, more like epidemiological, right? Like mm -hmm. after the fact, you're looking back and seeing, is there a difference in this population? Mm -hmm. There are also a ton of um, randomized controlled studies where, you know, they've looked at like 10 generations of quail or, you know, like, like so, so many animals. Mm -hmm. have been used in animal testing for checking genetically engineered crops. Yeah. And that's actually a pretty major pet peeve of mine where we have so many studies on some of these GE crops and yet every year more come out. And it's like, yeah. how many rats have to die before we can say, yes, BT, yeah. which is a protein used in insect resistant crops. Mm -hmm. we Yes, B BT does not cause health effects, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we were talking thousands and thousands of yeah. animals it's it's just shocking so anyway yeah I hear um you. i hear you but, but like, <laughs> yeah but, but again looking at humans we're not going to do randomized control trials on humans so right. again when, in the absence of those you just have to look at what are the sort of high-risk populations like who's eating the most gm food and you know has anyone looked at them and what might be the outcomes that you might predict yeah. would happen you know i mean it's kind of the same thing with with the livestock or you know any any epidemiology study that, that's done in humans, you know, where we look back at different populations and we say, you know, has there been an impact if we can separate out? And there's no um, there's no health effect that can be attributed to eating GM crops. Like we can look at countries that have bans on GM crops, and then countries that you know they're really a huge part of the food supply, mm -hmm. and there's you know, there might be health differences for other reasons, like socioeconomic, medical uh, care availability and other things. But mm -hmm. once you take all those out, there's no um, cause that's, that's that yeah. could possibly be attributed to biotech. Yeah. I suppose you can still argue again. I mean, there's just so many different variables you can, sure. we can't really extrapolate, but the, but the, the study, the definitive study is never going to happen is this, you know, two groups of randomized right. populations, one's eating the non-GMO ones eating the GMO corn. And, and even if you could, it's still incredibly difficult. And, um, you know, there, there have been nutritional research is difficult period because people yeah. are not very good at reporting what they eat. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where we may or may not be, uh, you know, providing good information about, about what we're eating. So you'd really have to have people like in a lab, and then like weigh everything that they eat. I mean, it would yes. be like incredibly invasive. And so yes. like sometimes studies like that are done for like major health problems. Mm -hmm. But for something like this, where there's no evidence that there would be a problem, it would just be a waste of time and money. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, <laughs> a lot of times in in the public, I think there's there people have a hard time when they don't really understand the mechanism. They don't they have a hard time evaluating whether there's a plausible mechanism first before you even go in. And yeah. and for me, just looking at uh, genetically modified foods, I don't see a plausible mechanism why I would be concerned short of, you know, that food has high levels of some protein that is problematic. But like you say, once you 
have examined that the risk profile of that particular enriched protein, then that's you're you're in pretty good shape. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what? Where else uh, was I going to go with this? Okay, right. Um, so we talked. We've we've just talked a lot about sort of how the safety is evaluated. I want to talk about labeling because um, again, there are going to be a lot of people out there who are who are not comfortable with any amount of uncertainty and and want and you know there's a strong push for labeling um, GMOs. So can you uh, just shine some light on what's been happening in the U.S. and the, specifically on the new um, bioengineering bioengineered food label? Sure. So I mean, GMO labeling has been pretty contentious in the past. Um, companies didn't want to label it because they've got a product that has been shown through very thorough science to be equivalent to the non-genetically engineered product. So why should they have to label? Like, mm -hmm. so from that standpoint, I, I understand where they're coming from, but as a science communicator, it's also frustrating, you know, looking back, if things had been labeled from the beginning, would public understanding or public, um, interest or outrage like like would things be different if they had labeled i you know it's, it's hard to go back and say right. but um so for most of the time that gm crops have been available on the market in the u.s they were not required to be labeled and so um that lack of information invited non-gmo labels to come up to provide that assurance to people who wanted it and so most of your viewers are going to be very familiar with the um, little orange butterfly, the, the non-GMO project that they um, have uh, created a, a very lucrative label, you know, where companies pay them to use that recognizable mm -hmm. label. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, in addition to that, you'll have other companies that, that might say that something is non-GMO and those have to be truthful. Um, the, the, under FDA regulations, labels have to be truthful. So if a company says something is non-GMO and it's not, then they could be sued, et cetera. So sorry, anyway. Just, what, one more thing. But when they say it's non-GMO, which definition of GMO? Are they only talking about the... Yeah. What, what definition are, yeah, do they have to use? That's a really good point. It depends on who who's labeling it. And that that I think is, is part of a good argument for um, for some sort of government labeling mm -hmm. um, because the non-GMO project, you know, they're a non-governmental entity. So they have come up with their own definition. The National Organic Program um, has a requirement to not allow genetically engineered ingredients into organically labeled foods. Mm -hmm. And they have their own definition of what a GMO is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and other people who may have other voluntary labels might have still mm -hmm. different definitions. Mm -hmm. And they may or may not allow things like um, genetically engineered microbes that produce some sort of trace ingredient right. processing aid, right. um, you know, things like that. So that does make um, it does make for some confusion. If you're really a, a purist and you don't want anything to do with bad technology, then you know, even using some of the non-GMO labels could be could be a little difficult. Um, so, the federal government, Congress, decided that they needed to have a mandatory label, um, in part because states, um, a couple of years ago, individual states were starting to make their own labeling laws. Mm. And 
having a patchwork of labeling laws across the U.S. would be really difficult for food companies. If you had to have a certain label in Vermont and then a different label in New York, and you know, that would be impossible right, right. Um, and potentially raise the price of food, which nobody wants. So um, largely in part because they didn't want that patchwork Congress passed a law um, to um, require the USDA to develop a bioengineered label. And so they did, um, and you can you know read all about it online. But the way that the law was implemented, ha- you know, they had to sort of do their best to thread the needle to, to make a label that would be able to be implemented um, that would at least somewhat satisfy both consumers as well as, you know, be um, be possible for industry. And I think generally what that means is that nobody's really happy at the end. That's kind of how all laws and regulation work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we ended up with is that earlier when we talked about, um, purified ingredients Mm -hmm. that, you know, don't contain any DNA or, or genetically engineered protein, like those um, the, the parts that you would consider genetically engineered, if a product does not contain those, they don't have to carry that bioengineered label. And that's something that a lot of people are concerned about. So, so for example, like genetically engineered, like sugar from genetically engineered beets or yeah, that's oil a good example. from genetically engineered soybeans, um, mm-hmm. those would those not, would be not have to be labeled. labeled, which is interesting because those are the most common genetically engineered ingredients in our food supply. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few examples. You know, I mentioned the, the GE non-browning apple that is available in some grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but other than those, you know, rare examples, most of the time we're only encountering GMOs as processed foods. So um, I guess that's one thing you could say is that if you don't eat processed foods, you're avoiding GMOs. Um, for the most part, as well as um, if you're only buying organic processed foods, then you would avoid GMOs. So it's not like it's not like there's no way to do it right without that bioengineered label. Yeah. Um, now, but, but, what so. about um, again? I think the category of ingredients produced through a microbe that's you know serving as sort of a factory to crank out a protein is an interesting one. And does the law sort of no labeling of that whatsoever? So again, like the cheese enzyme, chymotrypsin, um, or the, uh, the as far as I know, no, no, because the organism is no longer present. Mm-hmm. So, so is I the mean, crux- uh, so go sorry, go ahead. So there are um, there are some provisions in there that allow for voluntary labeling. Yeah. So like if, if something is biotech that maybe doesn't quite fit the definition of bioengineered, then the company right. can still label right. it. But like yeah. I'm thinking of the um, that sort of non, uh, the engineered dairy that is, per, is it perfect day? I forget what it's called. Perfect day. They're using, um, microbes to produce, um, milk ingredients. And so you're getting sort of vegan milk. Oh, is that perfect day? Oh, wow. I think it's perfect day. Is that available? It is, I believe. So technically that wouldn't have to be labeled as GMO maybe. Uh, uh. I mean, if the organisms are no longer present in the product, yeah. I'd have to go back and read, you know, read the regulations to be sure. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, if it's a highly purified ingredient, then no. So it doesn't leave very much that would be labeled. Like you're actually buying a genetically met, eating a genetically engineered soybean, or you're eating a, again a, a whole a genetically engineered papaya. I mean, like it's a pretty short list of things yeah. that you would actually 
do that. Right. I mean, there are like less processed ingredients, like, like cornmeal is a, mm. you know, ingredient that would potentially still retain DNA or protein mm. from the, from the corn in a recognizable state that you could identify in a lab. Right. So like cornmeal would still have to be labeled and anything that had that cornmeal in it, like a corn muffin. Mm. Um, but yeah, it really knocks out a lot of products. Wow. Yeah, so you're not going to be seeing it on a ton of, on a ton of foods, even though so the label in some ways underrepresents the way the technology is used, but it really only captures a small slice of it. Um, yeah, and you know that's kind of what frustrates me about it hmm. because as somebody who thinks that biotechnology has a lot of potential, mm -hmm. I really want people to see what what biotechnology is doing for us even today. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if there's a, a fuel additive that's produced in bioengineered microbes, boy, I want the, the gas pump to say it's made with GMOs, right? right? Like, like medicines right. and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because otherwise it's 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 hidden, which is not transparent, which is just not good for um, trust in, in what's happening, right? I think there's a definite trust issue when we're not being transparent about these things. But there's also this issue where if you don't know something's there, then how can you accept it? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you saw more of the ways it's being used in, in ways that you see the benefit of, um, you would be more inclined to... Yeah. Sort of and, and I will say that there are some food companies who see that, who, who have come to recognize this problem of, um, you know, both the trust issue as well as the um, acceptance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are a couple companies. One notable one is Soylent, um, which produces like meal replacement products. Okay. Um, and they've probably labeled as GMO for mm -hmm. years now. Interesting. Um, yeah, they were like one of the first. It was kind of exciting to see them yeah. like they're very pro pro technology, pro science and like right. in a lot of their advertising and things. And so they right. came out pretty early on, like we have GMOs yeah. in our stuff and we think GMOs are good. And and that was pretty neat mm -hmm. uh, to see. But, you know, even more recently, um, as the biotechnology or bioengineered labeling law was being debated, there were quite a few companies that came out and said, you know, we're not really sure we'd like how this is going. And so we're going to voluntarily label. Mm -hmm. And so you may have seen the, um, the smart label and some, some food products. Hmm. No. Um, oh, I, I'm, well, I'm in I, Canada, I, so I don't know if it's oh, so. you're in Canada. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah. So maybe you'd see it on some things if it was imported, but, but like, um, so in the U S if you pick up something like, I think M&Ms has it, um, where it's got like a, a QR code or something where you can scan it and then you can go online and find out more about all the ingredients. Mm. And um, it's it's a neat idea. Mm -hmm. um, some people don't like it because you have to take that extra step and be able to have a smartphone, you know, to scan it with and you have to take the time to look at the website. So it's not perfect, but right. you know, short of having a multi-page pamphlet with every single food product, mm -hmm. you know, we can't get all the information we want. Mm -hmm. So this was, I think, an interesting um, and creative alternative that um that many companies have gone forward with voluntarily, even though the bioengineered label ended up being passed. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we spent a lot of time here talking about um, the labeling and the oh, health sure. side of things. But I wanted to, um, just for the interest of time, start to move towards like 
the other areas of the discussion and I, we can only scratch the surface here, but uh, I know you've done some writing and your, your peers at Science Moms on how really the GMO debate is about so much more than GMO. So can you sort yeah. of elaborate on that? Oh yeah, I'd love to talk about that. And if if your um, viewers would like to to view more, then you can go to signmoms.com, and uh, we have an article called "The Social Consequences of the GMO Debate." And um, the the premise of that article is that modern agriculture isn't perfect, right? We have a lot of concerns about things from the fact that so many acres are in monoculture, where it's one crop for miles and miles, or um, the fact that um, uh, farm workers, you know, maybe are not earning enough money, you know, to, to feed their families. You know, there's, there's a huge number of issues, environmental impacts and health impacts and just so much. And it's complicated, right? Like if we were to try to fix the food system, like these are huge value judgments. Um, you'd have a hard time getting agreement from people. Anyway, long story short, it's a lot easier to say, hey, GMOs is the problem. We should just ban GMOs. And I feel like a lot of the, the concern, like the deep-seated emotional concern about the way the food supply is, has really been dumped onto GMOs as the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And it's silly when you think about it, because if you ban GMOs today, all those other problems would still be there. Farm workers aren't suddenly going to be paid a living wage, and you're not suddenly going to to stop using pesticides or uh, plant, you know, uh, borders around all the rivers to protect them. Like that stuff's not going to happen on its own because GMOs are gone. Um, but it's, yeah. it's sorry. Can I say easier. one thing? I just realized we didn't talk about um, how crops are actually selected without GMO. So, like again, our crops going to stop changing? Yeah. Our farmers not going to change? So, what again? Just make it quick oh, yeah. aside on what happens short of GMOs. If a farmer wants to select for a trait, like they want to change their salary, what do they do? Oh, yeah. Well, so farmers don't really do much breeding at all. Well, yeah, not, maybe not um, farmers, you know. but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I think that's an important point, right? You know, if we think back to some, like, red barn, you know, idyllic view of agriculture from, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, yeah, farmers did most of their own plant breeding. They would save mm -hmm. the best seeds from every year, plant those, and then, you know, they would incrementally improve over time. Um, and, and boy, you can get some changes. That's how Native Americans went from Teosinte, which was the ancestor of corn, to what looks very close to modern corn varieties was through, you know, years and years and years of selective breeding. But farmers don't really do that anymore because seed companies can do it so much faster and, and with so much more improvement over time. So almost all farmers buy seeds. Um, almost all farmers have to sign a contract when they buy the seed. Um, even if it's not genetically engineered, there's still going to be some intellectual property protection on the, the plants that they're growing. So if you think about, for example, apples, all those varieties that you see in the store, like um, Honeycrisp or Gala or Pizzazz, all those different varieties um, were produced by either a company or a university. And they're probably, um, there's a trademark on the name for sure. Mm -hmm. And they, the um, varieties probably got a plant patent so that you cannot plant seeds from a pizzazz and then try to sell them. You would mm -hmm. get in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and so biotech just kind of like takes that to 
another level a little bit, but it's not hugely different from what we have for non-GM crops. Okay. Does that answer your question? I feel like that's that's perfect. I think, um, like for example, the random mutagenesis is a common thing that people are unaware of that, you know, seeds are actually. Right. Right. So breeding methods, I think is another thing we could spend Mm -hmm. a whole nother hour on. Um, you know, what's the actual technology there, but, Mm -hmm. but suffice it to say that even without modern biotechnology where we're like cutting and pasting genes, there's still lots of methods that would be not recognizable to farmers a hundred years ago or to scientists even a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just rewinding to where we, you were saying that um, if you ban GMOs, it's not that every problem is going to go away, right? Is, is kind of where we were going. Right, right. So, um, you know, I think that people want easy solutions. We, we all do. Mm-hmm. And if we're concerned about the food supply and we think that maybe GMOs are the cause of the things that we're concerned about, then wanting a ban or at least a label so that we could avoid them, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that's just not how things are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess just in closing, as a, you know, as, a, as a mom, as someone who cares about the planet, someone who understands science, what are some sorts of things you do to sort of vote with your dollars when you're shopping for food? Sure. Um, well, I guess there's a lot of things. So one is um, when I can, I, I like to support our local farms. You know, it, mm. it makes me happy to know that I can buy peaches and apples and, and berries, you know, a- around my area um, in Virginia and Maryland. Um, I like to go to UPIC places too, mm-hmm. because that's a, it's a fun experience for my daughter and I, mm-hmm. but also importantly, that's a side income for um, farmers who choose to do that, right? Not only are they selling the products that they're making, but they're also charging admission mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So um, that's one way that you can directly support farmers mm-hmm. um, and cut out a lot of the middlemen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then I guess one thing that, that that I do personally is I don't eat I don't eat meat. Um, I do eat eggs and dairy, but um, I don't eat meat myself because I have concerns about um, how much farmland is used for growing animal feed. Mm-hmm. And studies studies have been done uh, called life cycle analysis where they look at all of the inputs for a product, um, how much energy and water and things like that go into making a food and um, Beef and lamb uh, generally are the highest for U.S. raised. That's not universal, right? If, if you've got pastured lamb from New Zealand, then that would have less of an environmental impact. But then you have to fly it over to our continent. So then, you know, um, anyway, eggs and dairy have less, as far as animal products go, eggs and dairy have less of an environmental impact than, than meat does. Um, and I've managed to stay stay plump, I guess, on eggs and dairy in addition to vegetables and grains. So it's not like I'm wasting away. But, um, uh, you know, (laughs) I think that that's something to consider, right? People are concerned about the impacts of the food they eat. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's easy to forget that when you buy a chicken breast, that represents a lot of corn and soybeans that went into feeding those animals. Mm-hmm. So something that people might want to look into a little bit more. Yeah. That said, it's not 
I, I think that it's important to remember that there's no there's no food that necessarily needs to be eliminated from our diets, right? Everything is everything can be a healthy part of our diet and everything can be a sustainable part of our diet. It just depends on how much of it we eat. If you're if you're having beef every day, then yeah, you're probably having a disproportionate environmental impact and you might be impacting your health too. But if you're eating beef once a week or once a month, then your impact is not not so big. Um, and I just think it's it's variety and having that variety in your diet is both good for your health and also good for agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that, that that is very even unevenly distributed in terms of you know land use for crops. It's it's quite astonishing how certain crops really dominating the landscape. Right. So I, I don't so know. Like, I don't know to the extent. I don't know to what extent our consumer choices are really going to move, are able to move that. Um, Short of the- it, I know it's it's tough because we're talking about population level effects. And even if I'm eating less meat, if vegetarians, you know, make up like three percent of the population, then mm-hmm. does it matter? Um, so I think that there is actually another thing that's really important is new food companies that are making creative products, and and as well as chefs, like like famous famous chefs, if they can. Uh, working with food companies through a food system, push new products to people that gain interest, then we can diversify our food supply a bit more. So we know that diverse grains and, and pulses, um, so like like legumes, beans of different kinds are, are very healthy and they're also good good for the land or better for the, for the land than just growing corn and soybeans. And so um, if, if there's products in the market that encourage people to eat, say, lentils and barley, then that would be really beneficial. But but right. people have to be willing to try them. Yeah. I've got lots of bean salads up my sleeve if anyone wants recipes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll share some of them with you. <laughs> um, no, we definitely eat a lot of lentils and beans in my house. Um, they're just, I don't know, they're like win, 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 win in my books. But I know, they, I know they're an acquired taste and you also have to kind of work your way up slowly sometimes to get your body to tolerate them. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working on my daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's that's pretty much covers it in terms of just, I feel like, what's a reasonable amount to, for people to digest at once. Is there, are there mm-hmm. any um, last closing um, comments or thoughts or resources you wanted to share for people that want to learn more? Sure. So um, also um, at SciMoms.com, we have a post called Introduction to GMOs mm-hmm. um, that kind of goes over the nuts and bolts, like what crops are GMOs and, and what traits exist and are they safe and those types of questions. Mm-hmm. So if you'd like to learn more, that's a really great place to start. Um, it's also full of links that go other places so that you can find more information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just maybe say a word on SciMom? So who are you guys and um, what, you know, what's your what's your motivation? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Thank you. So, um, so Simons, we are a, a group of um, women who are are moms, um, and then we're also scientists or science writers. And um, we came together um, quite a few years ago now, and um, uh, a doc- we, we have a, a mini documentary that you can find on YouTube. Um, and from that experience and working together on that, we realized that we wanted to do more. There's a lot of science communication being done, but and I'm I'm guilty of this myself. You know, when I was doing some psychom when I was younger, 
of talking to other scientists or talking to people who already are interested in science and would read about it regardless. But there's not as many products like the science communication resources that are available for for moms or for, you know, daycare providers or just like regular people, uh, grocery store employees, you know, just like folks who maybe they're not that interested in science, but they still have questions. Right. Mm. Um, and so we have been working really hard to put together resources on a variety of topics that are accessible to everyone. Um, and it's stuff that, that parents and caregivers would worry about. So like mm-hmm. we have um, one on, on gun safety, we have one on ambulance, um, mm-hmm. you know, just stuff like, like, is it safe? Are we worried about these things? Yeah. Um, trying to provide those resources. And we, we also get a lot of questions um, from our readers, um, both through our website and through social media. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times those will help us decide what topics to cover next. So um, I definitely encourage everyone to to send us your questions if you if you don't find the information you're looking for on our site um, so that we can consider that for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I highly recommend. I've used it before. I think you have one on screen time maybe that I was thinking at when COVID was kicking in, yeah. I was thinking how much screen time is reasonable? And, and you, you know, I, I love the way that you position things is that, you know, we're not the experts, but we can point you towards the appropriate experts and synthesize what they have to say. Yeah. And that's the key is knowing where to find good information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the internet, there's so much like a, a fire hose all the time of information and it can be hard to sift through. And so the Simons have, have done that for you, like yeah. found the best experts and put it together in a way that's um, easy to read. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time today to talk, um, talk more about GMOs. It's, it's a topic that I think really like, like you say, it really needs more clarity. And I hope that um, our conversation today did that for some people. I hope so too. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bonnar.